This is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. I can honestly say that my next guest is one of the most fascinating people I've ever had the pleasure to speak with. In fact, the word fascinating came up again and again during my interview with filmmaker and journalist Andrew Blackwell, specifically about his travels. Andrew calls himself a pollution tourist since he has traversed the globe seeking out the dirtiest and most degraded areas to still try to find some beauty amidst the muck. His findings were quite surprising, and his knowledge of the environment and where the world's headed is, you guessed it, fascinating. We chatted at Hustling International in New York about his wonderful book, Visit Sunny Chernobyl. You are the first pollution tourist I have ever met. I didn't even know that was a thing. I'd like to think I'm one of the first, at least to admit it. Do you know of anyone else that has traveled to the most polluted countries and places in the world? I don't think anyone's like made it a thing, at least not calling themselves a tourist. Uh-huh. There's plenty of people who have researched polluted places or problem environments, but no mm-hmm. one's really gone about it from the vacation angle, um, right. which blew my mind. I couldn't believe... I mean, I didn't want the insanely gargantuan task of writing a book necessarily, mm-hmm. but every time I walked into a bookstore and saw some book about my year trying to find the perfect piece of cheese in this one province of France, I thought, I can't believe that there isn't the environmental <laughs> travel quest book. It just made yes. no sense. Yes. And so I felt, kind of fell to me mm-hmm. to go there. You had to do this. Yeah. So tell me, so what is a pollution tourist? A pollution tourist, it's really the same as ecotourism. Okay. I don't really consider them separate things. Okay. I, people kind of have the idea of what an ecotourist is, yes. is that you might tune your travels to see interesting environments, interesting nature, get up, you know, on a zip line in the Amazon mm-hmm. canopy or something like uh, that. I have totally done that. Um, <laughs> and I just felt that we are missing half the equation here, which is yeah. seeing the really screwed up environments. So in your book, Visit Sunny Chernobyl, which is a wonderful title, you visited seven polluted, crazy, toxic locations in the world. Tell yes. me where you went. Well, I started in Chernobyl, Mm -hmm. and Chernobyl really is the gateway drug for the pollution tourist. Because, you know, I think of pollution tourism and ecotourism as two sides of the same coin, but when you go to Chernobyl, you really are doing very much both at the same time in the most obvious way. Because Mm -hmm. even though Chernobyl is the most radioactive outdoor ecosystem in the world, because all the people stay away because it's a quarantined government-controlled disaster area it's gone back to wilderness and so in addition to being spooky and post-apocalyptic it's also very beautiful and full of all kinds of wildlife and plant life that might not be there if there were still tens of thousands of people living there that's interesting did that surprise you I had heard about that, and that's one reason I went. It had just started coming out five or ten years ago that this was what was going on in the Chernobyl zone. But it did surprise me just how beautiful the place really is. Interesting. Um, Yeah, it's a lovely, lovely place, and I don't mean that ironically. Yeah. So it's a fascinating place. The balance is clearly skewed towards the beautiful because I mean there is a deserted sort of ghost city there Uh and there is the reactor building which is surprisingly uh, spooky to see in person but those are two relatively small bits of the zone and if you managed to get your escort to take you around a little bit more. <laughs> you tried very hard. I tried really hard. Or if you sneak in along the river, as yeah. I did a little bit, yeah, you don't see any visual evidence. If you've got your Geiger counter with you, you can uh-huh. still know that you're somewhere special. But all you see are trees and birds and bees and yeah. flowers and so on. And your Geiger um, counter was going nuts. Well, it depends where you are. It really yeah. varies from spot to spot. And that's another thing that's interesting about going to a place like Chernobyl is... It's really a learning experience, and Mm -hmm. nothing makes you interested in things like radiation or nuclear power and its various disasters than being personally irradiated. So, you know, it's like experiential (laughs) learning. It takes on a certain urgency when 
you know you're being irradiated because you've got the Geiger counter and it's beeping, but you don't really know what that means. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, epidemiology and radiation and Becquerels and microsieverts all become really interesting in a way that <laughs> they weren't in high school physics. Right. You know? So that's another thing I like about a place like Chernobyl. And there was a tour guide of yours that actually harvested mushrooms from the forest there. What's yes, that Yes, Dennis, yeah, he worked for the Chernobyl Authority as an escort. But he clearly, you know, by being there, had taken on this real affection for this natural environment. Uh -huh. And he did, yeah, he would go mushroom collecting, he told me, and eat those mushrooms, claiming that he knew that, well, this is a non-contaminated spot. And as enthusiastic as I am to show up in any kind of environmental yeah. toxic disaster zone, no, I, I draw the line at eating food that's grown in... <laughs> A radioactive environment. Especially when they told you not to step on the moss because... Yeah, exactly. You don't want to track the moss out, but sure, you're going to eat the mushrooms. It makes no sense. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. he was an interesting, interesting <laughs> guy. He definitely drunk the Chernobyl Kool-Aid some years earlier. Huh. So, yeah. So and, and, you know, Chernobyl, you can do it. You don't have to stay the night like I did and get badly, badly drunk on cheap vodka and cognac. And usually people don't. You just do it in a day trip from Kiev. And Kiev, uh -huh. this is one thing about any kind of particular little quest that you put yourself on. You know, I went there for Chernobyl, but to get to Chernobyl, you go to Kiev first because it's just a few hours away. Mm -hmm. And I had no plans on visiting Kiev otherwise. You know, yeah. Ukraine, I'm sure it's a very nice place, but I had no special need to go to Kiev, yeah. but it's a great place that I wouldn't have gone to otherwise. It has a certain Parisian slash former Soviet Union huh. flair to it. It's lovely. It's a lovely place, at least in the spring and summer. You know, the winters <laughs> I hear are really cold, right. but, but um, it's a great place. And, uh, you know, I was probably in Kiev for, I don't know, a week, something like huh. that, and then a day and a half in Chernobyl. And yeah, go to Kiev and make Do the it. trip to Chernobyl. All right. And where's the second place you went? Let's see. I went to Canada. Fort McMurray to see the oil sand mines. Yeah, up so there. what is that? It's just a giant open pit where they dig out a special kind of sludgy oil that's very popular in Canada these days. Part of the reason I went there is just because it's visually spectacular. There's a sort of artificial Grand Canyon. But partly I wanted to make sure that visiting polluted places didn't just mean going to developing countries, uh -huh. that we've got some good ones here in North America. Yeah. So I went to Canada. I also went to Texas to do a chapter about refineries in this very poor city called Port Arthur mm -hmm. on the Gulf Coast. Those places are really fascinating places that you wouldn't normally go in North America. So. Yeah, and it's interesting how you actually chartered a plane to try to fly over the oil sands. Yeah, it's really Port. weird. Fort McMurray is a little odd because Everything there revolves around the oil sand industry. Mm -hmm. This town, it's in northern Alberta, quite remote, and the only reason there's a city of such size there, I forget how many people live there, but 90%, 95% of the population of Fort McMurray is only there because of the oil sands mm -hmm. industry. They're either working in it or working in businesses that serve the people who work in it. Right. And there's a certain pride about the oil sands industry up there because it's so huge. It's one of the largest industrial operations anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. It's really shaped the economy of Alberta, if not Canada. There's a visitor center where you know they have all sorts of oil sand themed yeah, the information and displays and mm -hmm. artifacts and games for the kids if they want to pretend that they're working in oil sands and or what child doesn't. <laughs> or if it's me trying to squeeze myself into like a yes. kid-sized mechanical shovel game. But at the same time, if you want to actually see the pits for yourself, there's no way to do it. I was very green as a reporter when I started out this book. I was extremely clueless. And so when I went up there, I thought, oh, there's an oil sands bus tour. Mm -hmm. This is great. I can actually do the tourist thing and actually get the access I want and just drink their Kool-Aid and go nuts about it. Yeah. And then I find out that you see the, the sort of refinery plant. You see some trucks. You don't even see into the pit. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought, <laughs> what is wrong with you people? Like, I'm not doing any sort of outrageous you know, investigative revelations. We already know. I'm not protesting. I'm not chaining myself to anything. <laughs> and yet you don't want me to see it. And I found that very annoying. You know, I originally had visions of going hiking through the mines and maybe even in some extremely hopeful part of my brain, maybe a little <laughs> bit of camping. But no, so this real bummer of an oil sands bus tour 
doesn't let you actually see the oil sands themselves. So I hired this guy with a plane for us to fly over it, you know. It still has like a sort of Grand Canyon feeling yeah. to it. And it was something to see. It's big. That's the only way to put it. Huh. You very, guys were told to large. even turn around. I can't believe that he got the radio signal. Well, I mean, it's the, the scale of the operations up there are so huge that the different companies, they have their own airfields, they have their own yeah. air traffic control. Yeah, so we got a little bit managed. We didn't get turned back exactly, but we got a little bit managed about exactly where we could fly. Huh. The scale of it is just so gargantuan. Yeah. It is a real monument to petroleum. Interesting. Um, yeah, really fascinating. Because it's fairly remote in northern Alberta, and one of the reasons that people hate the oil sands so much, aside from they're very inefficient from a carbon point of view, mm -hmm. they're worse than just regular oil that you would suck out of the ground with a straw. That's one reason people hate it. But another reason people hate it is that it's in this very remote area where it's all just forest. It's this boreal forest that goes across northern Canada. And so that's another reason why it's controversial because they yeah. have to tear up all the trees. But the result is that when you go up there, when you're not in the oil sand mine itself, you're in this virgin boreal forest that surrounds Fort McMurray and mm -hmm. surrounds the oil sand mine area. You know, it's sort of like you go to see this sort of example of worst case environmental scenario, but at the same time you get the absolute flip side yeah. of it, which is really fascinating. Another way that ecotourism and pollution tourism, they really, there's yeah. no even point to distinguishing them from each other to me. You know, they just, they go together like a hand in a glove. Tell me about the ducks. Oh, well, there's this famous case in Canada. When you process oil sand oil, you need to basically boil it with bazillions of gallons of water to separate the sand from the oily part. Okay. That's one reason that it's so inefficient. Dirty oil. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They end up with this leftover water that's very toxic and full of all sorts of uh -huh. like nasty gunk. So they store it in these giant pools while they wait for certain things to separate out of it. So you have these huge, huge ponds of really toxic tarry water just sitting around. If you go to Google Map, Satellite Map and type in Fort McMurray, you can see the pits and you can see the ponds, and these are called tailings ponds. You know, it's northern Canada, there's migratory birds. Every now and then some ducks will land in these ponds and die because they're so nasty. And there was one famous case where several hundred ducks all landed at once. And, you know, there are like cannons to scare them away or in their little scarecrows yeah. and so on. But I, I don't know if it was early in the season, they didn't have a setup or something. And so all these ducks died. So there was a big lawsuit against yeah. the oil companies about the duck deaths and <laughs> at one level it's like makes perfect sense and it's like a very visceral demonstration of how nasty the process is yeah but you just can't help but see a certain comic value Absolutely. i mean it was like i think it went to the canadian supreme court for all i know i might be exaggerating that part but like <laughs> i don't even i've been a while since i read the case files on the ducks but it's you right. know it's like a it's a mass homicide case basically yeah, I, yeah. having to do with ducks and like where the oil company is going to pay restitution like huh. how much was each duck worth it's just kind of mm -hmm. absurd ducks make everything absurd i guess yeah. <laughs> they do yeah, i love exactly. ducks though <laughs> oh, I'm very pro-duck, don't get me wrong. Oh, I, I I'm in favor of duck, and I don't actually think that a thousand ducks dying all at once is funny per se, <laughs> but they are ducks. Yeah. And, you know, and so when there's like a major court case yeah. that's like pitting environmentalists against giant oil companies, yeah. and, and it has to do with the environment and hydrocarbons and energy and therefore, <laughs> you know, politics and everything, and yet, this whole time, people keep on having to say the word duck. Yeah. So you're thinking about these incredibly weighty issues, and at the same time, you're thinking about, like, all the quacking. Yeah. It's just a ridiculous combination. You can't escape it. Agree. Yeah. So Alberta, and then you did Texas. Texas, yeah. And then after Texas was... After Texas, I went to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch yes. in the North now, Pacific. Tell me yeah. about this faux Texas-sized island. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, most people know about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. For anyone who doesn't know, it's an area of the North Pacific where the currents all kind of spiral. And it's sort of in the middle of the great cycle of 
currents in the North Pacific. So it's a becalmed area where there aren't a lot of currents or wind. Mm -hmm. And all the plastic trash that doesn't degrade when it's sitting in the water, if it doesn't sink or doesn't get caught on Hawaii or something, <laughs> it kind of works its way into the center and hangs out there for all time, I don't know, indefinitely. What is the time frame, typically? I don't know if anyone really knows that. Okay. And th that's one thing that's interesting about the garbage patch is it's so remote and we're basically talking about a system that has to do with the entire north half of the Pacific Ocean. It's a yeah. huge system that it's very poorly understood. Uh, it's mm -hmm. something that's very hard to study and we've only really known about it for 10 or 15 years. Huh. I think it's on the order of years. If okay. you drop a bottle off of San Francisco and you are hoping that it will end up in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, I imagine it must be <laughs> at least a few years. It's fascinating and it's one of these interesting things where it's something that I'm not trying to debunk the idea of the garbage patch because it's mm -hmm. real and yeah. the plastic and also the small particles of plastic have become integrated into the ecosystem out there mm -hmm. and there's fear that they may be introducing all sorts of toxins into the food chain and so on. Like 10% of the fish or something crazy. Uh, yeah, like a lot of the fish have plastic in them and so yeah. on. And it also uh, allows different organisms to get out to that part of the ocean that might not have been there otherwise because they can hitch a ride on hampers and bottles that get out there. So it's definitely huh. changing things out there in some way and you can't imagine that it's positive. But the thing that isn't true is the idea that it's some sort of solid carpet, an island of trash. Someone somewhere along the way characterized it as an island. Right. And that image was so powerful that it has just locked on to a certain level of the environmental brainstem in popular consciousness and won't let go. And it's always compared in scale to Texas or sure. twice the size of Texas. Sure. And I invite you to just when you see like a headline about the garbage patch, especially if it's not from a top flight newspaper, but mm -hmm. I invite you to click on it and just scan it and <laughs> see if it is compared to the size of Texas. Right. And it's like, why? I mean, I know Texas is big and it's a <laughs> reference point, but it's as if when you are about to write a blog post or an article mm -hmm. about the garbage patch, someone appears at your door and says, welcome to the brotherhood of people who are going to write about the garbage patch, please know that you must compare it to Texas. It's yes. insane. Yes. Always twice the size of Texas. <laughs> I think if you Google twice the size of Texas, when you type in Google search term, it has uh, you know the yes. list of autocompletes. Yes. So you can use that as a reference for like what the common searches are. You know, if you type in your own name, you'll see like awesome. your name with something you've written or something <laughs> yeah. like that. You know. Oh yeah. In your case, awesome, awesome. amazing, because that's they want to know <laughs> how did she get so awesome and amazing. So you know, so the autocomplete is an interesting thing. So if you type in twice the size of Texas, I think the top two autocompletes have to do with the grapes of a garbage patch, and it's like. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to find a way out of being obsessed with the whole twice the size of Texas thing because it drives me crazy. Like twice as... Yeah, I don't know. Is that the only thing that big that we... It, it's weird that it's either Texas or twice the size of Texas. Right. Is it always, if it's larger than a bread box, it's Texas? It's Texas. Maybe. Like, I'm trying to think, are thing, large things always, always compared to Texas? I feel like... Not always, surely. Like, do they refer to Alaska as the size of Texas? I feel or? like you're touching upon your next book. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Next <laughs> book are dirty words to yeah. me. Um, well, so what was your experience going out with this ship? I went out as a deckhand, and so it was a giant steel sailing ship owned by this environmental quasi-activist organization. And they were going out there to check out the garbage patch. And it's so remote, you have very few options for getting out there. Very few missions go. A year or two before I went, um, Scripps had sent yeah. a vessel out there. There isn't a lot of science that gets to be done out there because to send a research vessel to the middle of the Pacific Ocean for a couple of weeks is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And so the research from that mission the year before I went is still being published in some of the best science out there. When I went a couple of years ago, so we were at sea for three weeks without seeing land. You know, I was 100 feet in the air, upside down, tying huh. knots. It was a serious-ass pirate situation like that's pretty it awesome, was actually. i mean we were literally singing shanties at, i would do that um 
So it was it was out of control. But again, not to just harp on the same thing over and over, but you know, I went to see the garbage patch, which is the problem with the North Pacific, but in order to do that, what you find is the North Pacific. You know, I really believe in pollution tourism, so-called, as one of the best ways to get in touch with nature. You pay attention to the environment and you encounter parts of the environment in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Mm -hmm. And often, as with the garbage patch, it's not nearly as viscerally horrifying as you might expect. And that's why, you know, the garbage island image, I think, is so persistent. Yeah. Because when you're writing about something or when an activist is trying to convince someone to contribute or be involved or care about it, Mm -hmm. you know, we really rely on imagery. And so the imagery being horrifying or ugly is really important Mm -hmm. at some level of environmentalism and doesn't always line up with that when you're there in person. I'm not a skeptic about most environmental issues whatsoever. But at an aesthetic level, I really do think there's a point at which we maybe need to kind of decouple our sense of what's beautiful and ugly mm-hmm. from our sense of what's environmentally healthy or worrisome. But the good news for the pollution tourist is that a lot of the most polluted or the most problematic environments in the world, you don't even have to hold your nose to Mm -hmm. find them interesting and beautiful. I was not expecting that. I really was expecting, if I go around the world trying to visit the world's most polluted places, that part of the fun, as it were, or the adventure is going to be me attempting to find these places Mm -hmm. pleasant or interesting or beautiful in some way. It ended up being really easy, at least for me, maybe I'm a little more willing to hold my nose, but to find them interesting, pleasant, or beautiful in some way. And I started to get really worried that even if I'm going to make these arguments about, you know, beauty and aesthetics versus environmental health, at some point I need to check the box of like just absolute something repellent and disgusting because no one will think I actually did my job if I don't do and it started to be a problem every time I'd show up in some place I'd, I'd think this is the place that's yeah. just going to be so gross it's yeah. going to be great and it would like win me over and I'd be mm-hmm. like no like don't win me over I'm <laughs> right. supposed to be going to the horrifying places why does every place have some silver lining that's so obvious yeah it was a problem but then you got to China yes and that was I went to some real pretty smoggy ass places. Yeah. But even there, you know, <laughs> I was in Linfen, which is the city in the coal region. Very, 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 very smoggy, especially okay. in the winter, which is when I was there. I got there at night, incredibly smoggy. I also was staying in this hotel where it was very sketchy and everyone was weird or unfriendly uh, or friendly in the wrong way. And I thought, this is great, finally, a place I won't (laughs) like. And then it turns out, you know, we're staying in the wrong hotel in a bad neighborhood, basically. So my translator, Cecily, was like, we are not staying in this hotel twice. And I was like, fine. We moved to this other hotel, very pleasant. We go out in the park. Everyone's like exercising and like dancing and practicing their calligraphy on the ground. And it's like, yeah, it's smoggy, but it's got a sort of civic life here in the public square that I would love to have where I live. And all the old folks are out dancing and like (laughs) doing calisthenics by the hundred and dodging kids on their tricycles. And I just thought like, this place is pretty great. And then I thought again, like Linfen won me over. It only took them 12 hours. You know, and then I gate crashed a coal mine and I thought, okay, mm-hmm. this is going to be horrifying. And it was really dirty and like there's a inch of coal dust on everything. And the people were really nice and friendly and welcoming and fascinating <laughs> and interested in where I was from. I don't know. Maybe I just didn't try hard enough to find true wretchedness. But, <laughs> you did you know, very well. I, there's that um, silver lining anywhere you go. Yeah. And I think sometimes as readers or as consumers of media, you don't necessarily realize the kinds of lenses and filters that are being applied to the sort of mediated experience you're having by reading an article or seeing a documentary or something like that. Right. Which is one reason it's so interesting to go out and visit these places for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing that motivated the whole project in the first place. I thought, I really care about the environment, but Mm -hmm. I've never actually had the personal experience, I felt, of these issues that I supposedly care so much about. And so I wanted to go and smell it for myself. And it ended up 
smelling different than I expected. Yeah. Not always better than I expected, but <laughs> different. You're thinking about the river in India. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. I'm actually, it's interesting, next year I think I'm going to the Yamuna, is that how you oh, pronounce yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. to work that. in the river. To work in the river? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. how do you mean? There's a grassroots organization. Mm-hmm. You won't actually be in the river. I probably will, with a full jumpsuit oh, okay. and mask. All right. and yeah, okay. I'll, I'll be properly protected, <laughs> well, as much as I can be. I'm imagining it to be pretty horrible. What, so what kind of work do you think you're going to do? Like, I don't know yet. Um, I'm doing a video project next year, so oh, wow. it'll be volunteerism-based. Oh, cool. And so that's obviously a very, very polluted river. Yes, and yeah, so that's the river that runs I'm through Delhi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a great stretch of water. Pretty stinky. Very, very stinky, but still really interesting. Okay. I mean, I have a problem of thinking everything is interesting. So, <laughs> and a major underdog complex, which is another reason I can <laughs> take a rowboat ride on a river that is literally all full of sewage and still think that it's a nice rowboat You're ride. You're one of the most fascinating guys I've ever <laughs> talked to. <laughs> well, I, I can't argue with you. I'm right. extremely fascinated. It's true. When you Google uh, Andrew Blackwell, fascinating. fascinating. How did he get so If you Google how, it auto-completes <laughs> to how did Andrew Blackwell get so fascinating? Exactly. Yeah, that's what Well, it when is. did Fukushima happen? When I was researching my last chapter. So okay. there is, Chernobyl is the first chapter. When I got to India, was, which is the last place I went to, to do a thing about the Yamuna River, which mm-hmm. you will visit, that goes through Delhi and south. And so I was in India when the meltdowns happened, and th- that was just an amazing, horrifying coincidence that gave me this strange feeling of cycles and connectedness with the world, mm-hmm. you know, having started in Chernobyl, and then when I'm ending this incredible quest and journey to have sort of the second ever Chernobyl in Japan. I found that really interesting because I was actually on my round-the-world trip. Uh, I was supposed to go to Japan just a few weeks after that happened. Oh, yeah. And I was still willing to go. I contacted my host and I it said... It would have worked out in the end, but right. you didn't... You, you but had no way of knowing I that. didn't know that, though, but like, I just Are they going to evacuate Tokyo? Because that sounds like <laughs> a good story trouble. Though. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But they said that they were actually in France. They left to go to France, so I couldn't go even if I wanted to. But I thought that was interesting. What about the Amazon? I went to the Amazon. The last one that we haven't talked about. Yeah, let's see. After the, I think it went after the Pacific. Mm -hmm. I went to the Amazon, and then China China, and India. India, yeah. The Amazon. I went to find out about deforestation. Yeah. I had the horrible experience of having bought my ticket to Brazil. Very excited to see deforestation in action, which I've been hearing about since I was a kid. Yeah. Possibly even I was hoping to friend some loggers. Not you necessarily. You always have these stories add, in your head before you go. Well, you, you know, it's the dream of your dream vacation. My dream right. deforestation vacation involved deforestation. Absolutely. And then, literally days later. My friend Adam, who was going with me, comes in with an article of some kind in the New York Times that says that, amazingly, for the first year ever, Brazil had less deforestation than ever before, and the area where we're going, there's really nothing going on. And I just thought, that is bullshit. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's like you're supposed to be able to count on death, taxes, and deforestation. And I've been hearing about the inevitable paving yeah. of the Amazon rainforest like since seventh grade. Yeah. And and then, oh no, but when I'm going to go, they're like, wait a second, we figured out a way to stop this in its tracks, yeah. which is exaggerating and deforestation is still a big, big problem in Brazil and elsewhere, but mm-hmm. I still, I felt very cheated. Yeah. But I had to go, and, and I was still able to find out extremely interesting things about mm-hmm. deforestation and see its after effects and see people cutting down trees even though they were doing it legally and sustainably. Yeah. But when you say, oh yeah, so I went to the Amazon, people think, well, what's so polluted about the Amazon? And indeed, when you go to a soy field near the Amazon River, it just looks like a field. It right. doesn't even smell bad at all, necessarily. Right. 
but it's an example of former Amazon turned yeah. into agricultural space. You know, it's a habitat loss and it's a climate burden because that forest isn't there to suck some of that CO2 mm -hmm. out of the air. So it's another way in which a place that doesn't look ugly or smell bad in any way exemplifies really important environmental problems. Yeah. And again, while you're there, you can also see the existing Amazon. So you get your ecotourism and your pollution tourism mm -hmm. in the same day sometimes. Yeah. So what's your takeaway from all of this? How are you feeling about the world? About the world? <laughs> about the end of the world? Yes. I just gave a series of talks at some universities called Apocalyptic Studies. Huh. And so I was talking about the same stuff, but sort of from the point of view of the apocalypse. And yeah. environmental problems are sort of a secular person's way of having an apocalyptic narrative mm -hmm. to how they see the world. What I believe is that the way we think about the environment is... We think about it in terms of it not being too late yet right. to do something about yeah. our environmental problems as a species or as a planet. And that's a very motivating way to think about it, that harp seal is, hasn't been clubbed yet. The whales aren't quite extinct yet. Right. The Amazon is still there somewhat, but we need to really start taking and care of business of now. Climate change hasn't destroyed the world or whatever yet, and so you better start biking to work and mm -hmm. recycling your Diet Coke cans. That is a way of thinking about the environment to help us stay motivated and sort of a descendant of how environmentalism was created in the West, which is sort of an idea of natural purity and that doesn't really include humans in the equation. Sort of hope that we can somehow preserve a primeval, non-human related wilderness in certain bubbles somewhere in the world. Yeah. So that's the preamble to what I actually think, which is that is a hopeless dream yeah. and that the world's already ended. Yeah. We're past yet, we're over the brink, and it's important to acknowledge and embrace the fact that the pre-human world, the idea of pure nature that doesn't involve humans, that yeah. that is just lost, yeah. completely lost. And at one level that seems really depressing, but I think it's really important to go there. And, and I didn't come up with that idea. If you read The End of Nature by Bill McKibben or mm -hmm. Earth, also by Bill McKibben, Earth spelled E-A-A-R-T-H because he says we should give up on the idea of E-A-R-T-H, Earth, yeah, yeah. as we have it as this ideal natural space, yeah. and rename the planet. I mean, he doesn't actually think we should rename it. Right. Rename it Earth with two A's mm -hmm. to reflect the fact that it is a different place right, and we yeah. cannot go back. Yeah. The reason that's important, if you read a wonderful book called Rambunctious Garden by Emma Maris, uh -huh. she writes about how if you base your idea of what it is we're trying to save when we talk about environmentalism. If you base that on some idea that doesn't include people or cities or roads, that somehow is based on some previous state, not only are we past that point, you can't even choose an appropriate previous state. Let's say we're talking about North America. Are you talking about before Europeans came? Right. Are you talking about before the first humans came because there was a mass extinction of megafauna in North America yeah, probably yeah. attached to when people came over to North America for the first time. You know, even like a park like Yellowstone, it's codified that it will be maintained as it was when it was first made a park. But it turns out that that was one point in a very dynamic mm -hmm. natural process and it's unnatural to try to keep it the way it was. <laughs> it's like if that's your goal is somehow like hold the line, preserve nature mm -hmm. in a bubble, or like somehow roll back to before civilization came along, if that's your goal, you will make all sorts of quixotic battles your priority, as opposed to trying to make the environment that does include humans somehow holistically more sustainable and healthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is sort of a change that's happening in environmentalism. I think a lot of the really serious environmental organizations have already gone here in their mm -hmm. own minds, and mm -hmm. some of them have become quite pragmatic about what kinds of battles 
they want to fight. Not necessarily using the kind of language that I would use, because when you say these kinds of things, it makes it sound like you should just throw up your hands and let's just just pave the place because the battle's already lost. I sort of think the opposite. It's, It's sort of we need to recognize that we've totally lost the battle to preserve some kind of pure nature mm-hmm. and find ways of caring about a world that does include humans and all mm-hmm. sorts of other things. Yeah. And so that's sort of why I think of Visit Sunny Chernobyl as a love letter to polluted places because we need to find a way to have that sort of nature high in a place that has roads and nuclear reactors smoldering and refineries and so on. Not because that means giving up, but because those places still are natural places. Those places still are environments. And after the end of the world, which is happening slash has happened, the world still exists. So the need to fight for a healthy environment doesn't end just because you already lost. Yeah. I think that's very important. Well, your book was really fascinating. Thank I you. really received an education from it. And I love that you did it in such a witty way, too. It wasn't all... <laughs> Things like the end of the world and death and, it's a little depressing. and everything, they're always treated as such downers. <laughs> and I just thought, like, there's a big opportunity here yeah. to enjoy the apocalypse um, a little more than, than you're supposed to. <laughs> right, uh, right. You know. I think you did well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are you ready for your Traveler's 10 questions? I am. As you roll your eyes. No, no, no. No. That was not me rolling my eyes. That was me girding myself. Yes. For for the machine gun of of the 10 questions. (laughs) All right. What travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? Well, first, I never want to pack my bags and hop on a plane. What do you want to do? I want to stay home and sit on the sofa and, like, eat tortilla chips. Absolutely. I I have a... (laughs) Travel, it provokes anxiety in me. Like, anything that's interesting and gets you outside of your comfort zone. Sure. And so when a trip is coming up, I never want to leave. I always just want to stay home. Yeah. That said, I really love... Jeff Dyer's book, Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do It. I think that's what it's called, yeah. And it's a series of travel essays that are really unlike most travel essays and Mm -hmm. really feckless reporting. He went to Libya, to these ruins in Libya, and actually decided to do it as an experiment in reporting from a point of radical ignorance and so he excused himself from all the sort of background research you're supposed to do. But then, of course, he says incredibly intelligent things, and uh-huh. his stuff is really smart and fascinating. Huh. So I love any kind of writing that excuses me from all the things I'm supposed to do or supposed to think. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> what destination do you consider a best-kept secret? Well, in the U.S., definitely Port Arthur, which is where I went to write about refineries. It is a really poor little city on the Gulf Coast, but really interesting place. The sort of leading civic activist there, Hilton Kelly, he opened up a soul food kitchen in downtown Port Arthur because there are no other restaurants because it's so poor and hollowed out. It's a great place to go. And there's a surprising amount of really beautiful, interesting wetlands and bird watching to be done all around these refineries. Mm-hmm. And an incredible amount of really interesting history about the oil industry. So you've got good eating. You've got really interesting stuff for the history buff or like for the engineer in the family who's right. like actually wants to know what the like catalytic cracker does that would to be the my dad. There you go. That's something for dad. <laughs> yes. Some hydrocarbons. But then you've got bird watching for the ecotourist and, and like be me. or for like the outdoorsman, anyone who yeah. wants to fish or go on a boat ride. Mm-hmm. It's an hour and a half from Houston, easy to huh. get to. There are always vacancies. Except once when I was there, there was an oil spill, and so a lot of the hotel rooms were taken up by oil spill cleanup workers. But that in itself is interesting. Yeah, I I want to make a vote for Port Arthur as a vacation destination. (laughs) And also, your tourist dollar is really helping out when you go to Port Arthur, because who goes there? Nobody. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, Port Arthur, Texas. (laughs) What site should be seen at least once in a lifetime, and why? Definitely Chernobyl. It's interesting because they are building a new shelter for the shelter in Chernobyl. Right. Um, and they just took down the smokestack. 
it's not a smokestack, but the iconic chimney on top of the Chernobyl reactor building, they just took it down so that they can fit this new shelter over the thing. So you've lost your last chance to see the iconic Chernobyl reactor building as it sat for the better part of 30 years. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the new safe confinement, which is this big concrete arch that they've been building to put over the reactor, that's brand new. So if you go next year, you'll be one of the first people ever to see the new safe confinement Mm -hmm. uh, in place. And so either way, you win. It's like seeing the Taj Mahal for the last time the way it was and then seeing it for the first time in its new configuration. What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? Probably when I was in China. I like food. I'm not one of those non-food liking people Mm -hmm. because those people are out there. But I'm not really. Oh, really? You're one of the people who if you could just eat a flavorless brick once a day, (laughs) that would take care of all of your nutrition. So you don't like food. I'm not a food person. That's so interesting. See, now I'm fascinating. (laughs) Oh, I... (laughs) Okay, maybe with that, maybe you're fascinating. Maybe. (laughs) I'll let you know when you're fascinating. Okay. Uh, So I'm I'm not one of you strange food haters, and I have many friends who are real food Quester. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially here in New York, people seek out that perfectly amazing, obscure, <laughs> weird little hole in the wall somewhere in Queens or the yeah. Bronx or something like that. And I love to go along with that because I'm always down. Yeah. But I'm pretty happy eating the same tasty sandwich every day for lunch. On the other hand, my translator in China was more demanding food-wise than I was. And so she was Chinese, great translator and a reporter in her own right. So when we were in Linfen or in a city called Shantau, which is on the coast, every night she wanted to find something different and interesting. And we had a couple meals on that trip, especially in Shantau where there's a lot of seafood. There was one night where we came up to this place and it, it looked just like a seafood market sort of okay. that opened onto the sidewalk, but it was a restaurant. You know, they had these huge ice shelves just with all kinds yeah. of oceanic beasties on them there's fish and then you know squid clams all that stuff and then things that i i don't know what it was but it was really fresh (laughs) but i was like it doesn't look like a fish but it has eyes and it came (laughs) out of the water anyway so and you would just sit there and point at different things and then they would like whip it up chop the hell out of it and like stick it in a wok and go nuts with it and so with cecily there you know i thought okay we'll get two dishes whatever and she's like no this is an opportunity and so she ordered like six things and it was just an epic epic meal and then and then there's just like a plastic table there and you sit down they bring you all this stuff and that was a great great there was actually a moment when I was like, we we're in Linfen. I was like, well, let's just go, you know, to that one place and get some noodles again. And she, and she, she was like, no, we are going. And we'd only been there once, but she's like, no, we're in a new city, yeah. and I haven't eaten everything in the city, so we are moving on to the next. Thing. So you know, it's good to have that kind of person around. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road, and how could other travelers avoid it? I once was in Afghanistan for a few weeks. Um, Yeah, I was working as a video editor and a sound guy for a very small crew, getting some footage of the Afghan elections in 2004. Hmm. And we're mainly in Kabul, but this one day we drove up to Bamiyan to stay up there for a night or two. That's where those giant ancient Buddhas used to be that the Taliban destroyed when they were in power. It's still a beautiful place. And so we drove up there. It was a really long drive. Roads weren't paved. It's really slow going and a little confusing about which roads were safe. So we kept on sort of like going in very circuitous routes, depending on what the local knowledge was. I mean, it must have been like an 18-hour car ride or something like that. It took longer than expected, and we ended up completing the drive at night. So we're in the Afghan countryside after dark, on really rough roads in the middle of nowhere. And this is like the thing everyone said to us, do like not, not do this. don't be caught out <laughs> in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan in yeah. 2004, I mean, or probably now too, in your little silver minivan when anything could happen. Yeah. And anyone who wants to mess with you, there will be no help for you. So that was, that made me really tense. <laughs> Cause it was like, the people told us what not to do. And then 
that served as a description of then where we found yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And so I would just not do that. Just don't do that. I, yeah. If you have a what seems like a fairly safe, controlled way to go to Afghanistan or anywhere that's supposedly really scary, by all means, go for it. But don't end up <laughs> in the middle of nowhere no. with no help in sight. And it worked out for us because we got to our hotel Basically. and it was fine. And I'm sure usually nothing happens. But it was just sort of, oh, this is what mom told me what yeah, not to do. That would make now me a little I'm doing tense. It. Yeah, it made me a little tense. <laughs> On a side note, do you know Kim Barker? I know Kim Barker well. Yeah. Taliban Shuffle is an yeah, awesome yeah. book. I interviewed her on Monday. Really? And she mentioned those missing Buddhas, oh. which is very interesting yeah. because you're yeah. now the second person. It's a beautiful place. I mean, yeah. especially after that drive, you know, we drove for hours and hours and hours and the countryside in Afghanistan is so rugged and yeah. dusty and rocky and you get to Bamiyan and it's really an oasis. You yeah. Know, there's like a stream and some trees and you just feel the moisture, and it's a beautiful, fascinating place. Mm -hmm. I mean, Kim Barker is someone who really knows Afghanistan and Pakistan. She was over there for years as a reporter, mm -hmm. and her book is so fascinating yeah. and interesting and sad and funny, and it reads so fast. And I thought I kind of kept up with the news and kind of knew a little bit about Pakistan and Afghanistan. I found it fascinating and educational and yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, the Taliban shuffle. You can't. You can't beat it. <laughs> She's a fascinating gal herself. Yeah. What passport stamp still eludes you? I don't think I've ever been anywhere in Africa. Hmm. Although maybe I should just make that my thing. You know, maybe. one continent will remain. Always. Always. But you can Antarctica. Um, oh, two continents then. Yeah, maybe. yeah. No, <laughs> but yeah, I've me. never been anywhere in Africa, and I'm sure there's 18 bazillion interesting, fun, it's cool things great, yeah. to to see there. <laughs> What's your most cherished souvenir and why? That's a good question. I do like my old Geiger counter from Chernobyl. You get that? Yeah, I have it in a box somewhere. Yeah. It's like a tiny little white plastic thing. <laughs> in addition to, it's just interesting to have a Geiger counter around the house. Because, you know, there's always background radiation. So it's yeah. like always fun to like turn on your Geiger counter and like, find out. <laughs> That yes, there is radiation, especially like if you want to show it to someone, be like, yeah. "Oh, look, this is how much radiation we're being exposed to here in Brooklyn or here in Manhattan or whatever." Right. And people are always a little bit like freaked by it. Yeah, uh, by, they just don't want to think about that. No, but also it re required a little bit of a quest, so it's probably one of my first sort of successes as a journalist or as a professional. Mm -hmm traveler or as a travel writer to actually find the damn thing in yeah. Kiev before I went up to Chernobyl and it was a bit of a goose chase to find it but we did find it that, that's a very pleasant memory yeah, yeah of course of course <laughs> yeah what's the most interesting customer tradition you discovered abroad and did you bring it back home well you know the whole holy bathing thing in India is really fascinating mm -hmm. that's not a secret but, you know, rivers are really holy in India, and so there's nothing many Indians would rather do, devout Indians at least, um, than get in the Ganges or the Yamuna or whatever and give themselves a little dunk or, like, splash some water around. I found that really interesting, especially from the point of view of how that sort of sacredness and holiness is totally decoupled from... Right. whatever the physical state of the water is. Uh -huh. You know, you have incredibly polluted water just full of heavy metals and feces and whatever. Yeah. But that is not relevant if you're in it for the spiritual right. quotient. I, so I have not brought that tradition home. <laughs> I, I do love the whole, like, Gowanus Canal canoeing thing. Here in New York, we have the Gowanus Canal. It's uh -huh. a super fun site. And there's a canoeing club that goes around yeah. on it. And I love that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not about to dunk myself in the Gowanus right. Canal. <laughs> I, would, I would swim in the Hudson River, the East River. I, I'm not worried about that these days. But, I no, I'm not really about to take up the practice of ritual immersion <laughs> in really polluted waterways. You did trickle some water on your head. Uh, I trickled a little bit of water. A little bit. A <laughs> little bit. Just to get your just to, just, get, just to give the feeling. Sure. And I figure I'm not going to like catch cholera through the back right. of my neck. Um, <laughs> so, All yeah. Right. What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? I have two, if that's okay. Sure. One is, sometimes the subject of travel will come up with someone and they'll say that they've hardly traveled anywhere, and they say it in a really apologetic way. Yeah. 
like they're embarrassed that they haven't traveled because travel is this thing that people really use to signify to the people around them that they are cultured and right. smart and adventurous and all this stuff, you know. And, oh, no, they don't go on cruises. You know, they go, like, trekking. <laughs> right. You know, like, oh, yeah, they went to Thailand. But, no, they didn't do that thing that everyone does in Thailand. They, like, went to this place really <laughs> serious, you know. And I just feel like I think it would be great for everyone to relax a little bit about mm -hmm. it. And you can actually be a really cultured, fascinating, thoughtful person who has not left your own country. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. And that shouldn't be, like, a counterintuitive idea, especially if you want to get all environmental about it, if you want to talk about the carbon footprint of flying all yeah. over around the world yeah. as we have, yeah. you know, but somehow that doesn't come up when, you know, right. because that's like something that liberal, like thoughtful, educated, usually environment loving people, mm -hmm. that's part of that identity is being well-traveled. So like the yeah, whole, yeah. like, if you, oh, if you care so much about recycling <laughs> and eating organic or whatever, maybe you shouldn't be flying so much right. either, but that doesn't come up because that conflicts no, no, no. with... <laughs> So one thing is, I don't think that people should be hard on themselves if they just decide you can blow your own mind by going to another part of the state. So that aside, okay, I think having some kind of little quest or scavenger hunt of some kind is the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. In my case, it was an epic quest worldwide scavenger hunt for environmentally messed up and interesting places mm -hmm. but it can be anything you know whether it's a certain kind of art you like a certain kind of food you like a certain kind of drinking you want to do a certain mm -hmm. anything that makes even the most boring place interesting that mm -hmm. makes a place like Port Arthur which yeah. is not supposedly interesting very interesting to me because I was there to see something specific mm -hmm. when someone says yeah you can like get into this old oil field that's fenced off you're like holy crap <laughs> I am like in an amazing place think a little bit like a reporter with that way I would say yeah. I like that and what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world it's a little bit related to that you know once I heard Susan Orlean say mm -hmm. that it's amazing what happens when you walk up to someone and say, can you help me? Uh -huh. I think that was her, which is very good advice for shy reporters mm -hmm. such as myself. But it's also pretty good advice just for travelers within bounds of not asking people who seem dangerous or scary, but walking up to someone saying, can you help me find this? Can you help me figure this out? It's something that does not come naturally to me, which is tragic for a reporter, but is a very powerful and sometimes even profound way to go about things. I love that. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it was amazing. Thank I'll you. talk to you about your second book about Texas and two times the size <laughs> <Right>. of it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Thanks a I'm sure this conversation has piqued your interest about pollution tourism. So if you'd like to find out more, then make sure to purchase Andrew's book on Amazon or follow his adventures at andrewblackwell.tumblr.com or on Twitter at ablackwell. Remember to recycle, and until next time, get out there and set the world on